Hello, this is William Fink and this is Chris Gania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 17th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. As I had explained in the opening presentation in this short series, I had hoped to gather into one place my interpretations of the time and place of the writing of each of the epistles of, excuse me, of Paul of Tarsus, as well as a general chronology of the events recorded in the book of Acts. I had also originally hoped to do that in a single presentation, but it was just not possible. So while we have discussed what I have called Paul's traveling epistles, at least for the purpose of these presentations, now we shall discuss the time and place and also the circumstances of the writing of the six epistles that were written while Paul was a prisoner. Once again, for much of this presentation, I am drawing on information which I had already presented in our commentaries for each of the epistles of Paul and in our earlier commentary on the book of Acts. There are also some new perspectives, at least a couple here and there. This is important to us for several reasons. First, it is an important reference tool because, in my opinion, no other such reference exists which has a truly accurate chronology of the events of the ministry of Paul, the writing of his epistles, and the book of Acts. As I had also said, there is much misinformation in many popular and supposedly authoritative academic sources concerning the ministry of Paul and the writing of his epistles. And it is convenient to have our own opinions of these things in one single article, or perhaps more accurately, one single source of reference. It'll be split into two presentations, of course. But there is one further reason. Once it is realized that we can indeed know where Paul of Tarsus was throughout nearly his entire ministry, that it can all be accounted for in the records of his epistles and in Acts, then we also know where Paul was not. Paul of Tarsus never wrote an epistle to the Egyptians or to the Arabians, to the uh, apes of sub-Saharan Africa, or to any other race, period. He never visited or preached among them either. There is no Roman Catholic universalism in the ministry or the epistles of Paul. And taking the words all men out of context and twisting them into a universalist interpretation is not sufficient evidence. But on the other hand, Paul of Tarsus was never in Britain or Spain, although he had expressed the hope that he may reach Western Europe. And the so-called 29th or lost chapter of Acts is a complete hoax which was perpetrated in recent centuries and used to patronize and to deceive many 
British Israel and American Christian identity adherence. We do not need lies to support our assertions or the basis of our faith. As Paul himself had said in his epistle to the Romans, if my lies advance the truth of God, why am I still a liar? And I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. We don't need lies to prove or to advance the truth. As a digression, one admission I must also make here is that in my September 2013 commentary on Acts chapter 13 at verse 1, I did not connect Lucius or Lucius, the C is never really pronounced that way in Greek or Latin, Lucius of Cyrene to the Apostle Luke. But we see that Lucius or Lucius was considered among the prophets and teachers at Antioch. And after Paul had left Antioch for the Council of Jerusalem in 48 AD, Luke was his companion and fellow worker. Therefore, I am compelled to assert that the Lucius of Acts chapter 13 is indeed the Apostle Luke. My September 2014 commentary on Romans chapter 16 does connect the Lucius of Paul's salutation in that epistle to the Apostle Luke. Although his name is usually spelled Lucas, that is because there is no other Lucius mentioned after Acts chapter 13, and Luke is clearly with Paul and worthy of mention when the epistle to the Romans was written from the Troad in 57 AD. This is all circumstantial, but the circumstances explain one another fully. Furthermore, as we have pointed out, there are several other men in Scripture whose names are spelled in more than one way, such as Titus and Titius, Silas and Silovanus, or Silvanus in Latin, and Sopater and Sosipater, where each shorter version of a name is apparently a more familiar form of the longer version. So in Acts chapter 20, after Paul of Tarsus arrived in the Troad, following his three months in Greece and an apparent brief journey through Macedonia, we see that many of his fellow workers had gathered to meet him there, including Luke and his company from Philippi, whoever was with Luke, they are unnamed. Timothy is also with him, and Aristarchus. Both of those men will be mentioned later as they were apparently arrested with Paul in the temple in Jerusalem. Timothy and several others of these men who were with Paul in the Troad are mentioned in the salutation at the end of the epistle to the Romans, and from that we should know that Romans was written during the seven-day period that these men had tarried there, shortly after the Passover in 57 A.D., This is the point at which we had left off in our last presentation with the writing of Romans. The following chart of the chronology of Acts is more thorough than the one we had provided with our first presentation. I will probably amend that chart in the notes posted at Christagenia, perhaps even as early as this evening.
Here I have also added the writing of each of the epistles of Paul. Bear in mind that some dates may be off by one year, such as the date for the Council of Jerusalem, which may have been in 49, rather than 48, or that of Paul's arrival in Corinth, which may have been in 51, rather than 50. These possibilities and others have been discussed in the notes, or in in the case of this later portion of Paul's epistles, they will be discussed in the notes. So, our chronology, with some additional entries, from part one, from the traveling epistles, and the early chapters of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, the first Christian Pentecost was in 32 AD. In Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Paul of Tarsus was in 35 AD. The visit of Paul as a Christian to Jerusalem was in 37 or 38 AD. And Paul was sent to Tarsus in 38 AD. In Acts chapter 11, Paul retrieved from Tarsus to Antioch by Barnabas. Barnabas went and retrieved Paul from where he was sent to Tarsus and brought him to Antioch. And that happened sometime before 44 AD. In Acts chapter 12, the arrest and release of Peter in Jerusalem and the execution of the younger James. That happened by 44 AD. We can't pin that down to an exact date. It must have been between 41 and 44 AD, while Herod Agrippa was king. Acts chapter 11 through Acts chapter 15. Paul's ministry with Barnabas began shortly before 44 AD and ended in 48 or 49 AD at the Council of Jerusalem. And we date, and we have reasons, we date in Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem to 48 AD. That's the date I prefer, for reasons I had explained in part one of these presentations. In Acts chapter 18, Paul arrives in Corinth in 50 AD, or possibly in 51, but I prefer 50 due to the travels, the extensive travels which he had between the time he left Corinth and the time he arrived in Ephesus for the beginning of a three-year ministry there. Acts chapter 18. Paul arrives in Antioch in 52 AD. The epistle to the Galatians is written from Antioch that year. Acts chapter 18. Paul arrives in Galatia and walks through Anatolia to Ephesus from 52 to 53 A.D. Acts chapter 19, the beginning of Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, 53 A.D. Epistle, the first epistle to the Corinthians, was written from Ephesus sometime before the Pentecost of 56 A.D. I should say sometime shortly before that Pentecost. Acts chapters 19 and 20. Paul departs from Ephesus and route to Corinth via the Troad and Macedonia 
56 AD. And the epistles to Titus and the first epistle to Timothy were written from the Troad or perhaps from Macedonia shortly after the Pentecost of 56 AD. Acts chapter 20. Paul went to the Nicopolis of Epirus, north of Corinth, in the winter of 56 to 57 AD. During that winter, the second epistle to the Corinthians was written from the Copolis. In Acts chapter 20, the second ministry of Paul in Corinth, perhaps for only a month, was in 57 AD. And Paul was in the Troad with Timothy, Luke, and others sometime shortly after that, that same year. And the epistle to the Romans was written from the Troad in 57 AD. Then from the prison epistles, which we are going to discuss this evening, and the later chapters of Acts. In Acts chapter 21, Paul was arrested in the temple at Jerusalem around Pentecost in 57 AD. The epistle to the Hebrews was written by Paul in 57 AD or shortly thereafter, perhaps in 58, in defense of his position and the differences outlined in the words of James in Acts chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. We will discuss that this evening. Acts chapters 26 and 27. Paul was heard by Festus, and then by both Festus and Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, from 59 to 60 AD. Acts chapter 27. Paul was sent to Rome, and being shipwrecked, had wintered on Malta in the winter of 60 to 61 AD. And I should say that it was, I believe, in 58 AD that Felix left Paul bound after Paul had been imprisoned for two years. That happened in 59 or, I'm sorry, 58 or early 59 AD. Probably early 59 AD. Acts chapter 27. Paul was sent to Rome and being shipwrecked had wintered on Malta. 60 and 61 AD. That winter. Acts chapter 28. Paul arrived in Rome where he lived for two years from 61 AD. The epistle to the Ephesians was written. Perhaps in 61 or early 62 AD. Paul defends the faith before Nero in Rome, perhaps in 61 or 62 AD. We can't, we could be sure of the sequence of the events, but not of the exact year. The epistle to Timothy, the second epistle to Timothy wherein Paul had asked Timothy to come to him in Rome, was written just after Paul gave his defense of the faith. In 61 or 62 AD. I lean towards 62 AD 
for that event. The epistles to the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, who was a Colossian, were all written after Timothy joined Paul in Rome, perhaps in 62 or 63 AD. In Josephus' Antiquities, Book 20, after the death of Festus, the sudden and unexpected death of Festus, as he was in office, he was probably poisoned by Jews, I would bet, James, the brother of Yahshua Christ, the same James whom Paul saw in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, was murdered by certain Sadducees in Jerusalem shortly before Lucius Albinus arrived to assume office of procurator in Judea in 62 AD. And finally, tied to Acts chapter 28, because Luke had stated that Paul was there for two years, Paul was most likely executed by Nero in Rome in 63 AD. Many chronologies of Acts Suppose that Paul was released from his initial imprisonment in Rome and had a later ministry during which he was arrested again and then executed. But that is not true. These opinions are based on a chronology of Eusebius of Caesarea, who was writing in the 4th century, at the same time that Constantine the Great was establishing the church at the Council of Nicaea. Eusebius had merely supposed that Paul was released and later rearrested because, as we demonstrated in our introduction to the commentary on the epistle of the Colossians, his chronology was wrong in other respects. And, for example, our signal example, he had the dating of an earthquake, which had destroyed much of Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis three years too late. For that event, we have a more accurate witness in the first century historian Tacitus. The earthquake actually occurred in 59 AD, and Paul wrote the epistles to the Colossians and Philemon in 61 AD, or more likely, in 62 AD. At that same time, he also wrote a now-lost epistle to the Laodiceans. If the epistles were written three years after the earthquake, which shall be made evident here, then there was little reason to mention the event. So, according to some sources... The Chronicles of Eusebius date the earthquake to the 10th year of Nero, or 63 to 64 AD. In Book 14 of the Annals of Imperial Rome, the historian Tacitus wrote that in the Asian province, meaning the province of where Ephesus was capital, and Laodicea and Colossae were part of that province, in the Asian province, one of its most famous cities, Laodicea, 
was destroyed by an earthquake in this year and rebuilt from its own resources without any subvention from Rome. And that's from the Annals of Imperial Rome, chapter, or I'm sorry, book 14, chapter 27. Evidently, Hierapolis was also destroyed and then rebuilt. But the historian does not mention that city. Laodicea was only 10 miles from Colossae. And Hierapolis was near to Laodicea. Tacitus was writing about a period no later than the 7th year of Nero, or 60-61 to 61 AD. And he says that the uprising of the Iceni in Britain, which is also generally dated to that same time in 60 or 61 AD, happened in the year following the earthquake. So as Tacitus attested that the earthquake preceded the Iceni uprising by a year, it most likely happened in 59 AD. Now to return to our narrative of Paul's ministry. After the seven days, which those who had joined Paul had spent in the Troad, Luke indicated that the entire group had set sail together to Miletus. Paul wanted to see the elders of Ephesus, but did not want to go to Ephesus, probably on account of the troubles with the pagans, which he had there the year before, and the fact that he did not want to be held there, as he needed to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. So after Paul addressed the elders of the churches of Ephesus in Miletus, with stops in Tyre and Ptolemais, the group sailed to Caesarea, from which place they traveled to Jerusalem. Although Timothy was apparently with Paul in Miletus, as he was with him in the Troad and later in Jerusalem, when Paul wrote Timothy several years later from Rome, for some reason he had mentioned leaving Trophimus behind in Miletus because he had fallen ill. However, Paul had no other occasion to be in Miletus, and Trophimus was with Paul in the Troad, as he is mentioned by Luke in Acts chapter 20. He is not mentioned again. So, while there must be some reason why Paul found it necessary to make that statement to Timothy, because Timothy should have actually known that, this situation does not help to, does help, I'm sorry, this situation does help to explain Luke's statement in Acts chapter 21, where Paul, speaking of Paul, he explained that the Judeans, had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Well, being left behind in Miletus this year, that must be a reference to something which happened in a past year. Trophimus was an Ephesian. And here it is evident that he was a Greek and not a Judean. Luke made this explanation in regard to a charge which the Jews in the temple had conjured against Paul, that he had further brought Greeks also into the temple and has polluted this holy place. But if Trophimus was left behind sick in Miletus, that must have happened when Paul stopped in Miletus weeks earlier in Acts chapter 20, and therefore it is unlikely that Trophimus was in the temple with Paul in the events of Acts chapter 21. 
Rather, it is evident that Paul, having ended his three-year stay in Ephesus only one year earlier, in 56 AD, that during that time, he must have had other unrecorded visits to Jerusalem for the annual feasts, as he was required to do three times a year, and must have brought Trophimus to Jerusalem with him on at least some of those occasions. In that same place in Acts, Luke reported that it was men from Asia, the capital of which was Ephesus, who made that accusation, and therefore it is plausible that they were referring to some occasion in the past. Reaching Palestine in 57 AD, Paul and company arrived in Tyre, where they had stayed for seven days, where Paul was warned not to go to Jerusalem. Then they sailed south to Caesarea, the port closest to Jerusalem, and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. There, Luke wrote only that they tarried there many days. However, those many could not have been much longer than another week or two, as Paul had already been in Miletus for at least a few days, and in Tyre for another week, and then they stopped in Ptolemais for at least a day before reaching Caesarea. As we had said, when he left Corinth and arrived at the Troad, in Acts chapter 20, he had not much longer than six weeks remaining before the Pentecost for which to get to Jerusalem. And he also had much time consumed in his travel at sea. After a prophet named Agabus had warned Paul that he faced arrest in Jerusalem. Paul and company nevertheless left for the city very soon after Paul had answered him. The remaining time until Pentecost must have been short. Since Luke had written in Acts chapter 20 that Paul had hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. It is also plausible that Paul timed his journey to reach Jerusalem within only a day or two of the feast. When Paul left Caesarea for Jerusalem, even more of the brethren from there had joined his company. So he must have had quite a number of companions with him, perhaps as many as twenty, since Luke had already mentioned at least a dozen, and there must have been a few who were not mentioned, but whose presence was implied in various ways. Then, when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he was admitted to see James, and we read the following from the Christogenian New Testament. And upon our coming into Jerusalem, this is Acts chapter 21, the brethren gladly accepted us. And on the next day, Paul went in with us to Jacobus, or James, and all the elders were present. And greeting them, he explained about each one of those things which Yahweh had done among the nations through his ministry. And those hearing it extolled Yahweh and said to him, You consider, brethren, how many myriads there are among the Judeans who are believing, 
and all being zealous of the law. And they are informed concerning you that you teach departure from Moses for the Judeans throughout all the nations, saying for them not to circumcise the children nor to walk in the customs. So what is it? By all means they shall hear that you have come. Therefore do this which we say to you. There are among us four men having a vow upon themselves. Taking them, you must be purified with them, and pay the expense for them, that they shave their heads. And all shall know that which they are informed concerning you is nothing, but that you yourself also walk in line, keeping the law. It was evident from the need for the apostles to hold a council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 that there were Judaizers in Jerusalem and the words of Paul concerning Judaizers in his epistle to the Galatians along with his later having admonished Peter in Antioch which he also described in that epistle shows that the Judaizers were indeed enforcing the maintenance of the interpretations of the Pharisees for Judeans who had turned to Christ. Here it is also apparent that James had become affected by these and evidently supported their positions. But it is true that Paul was teaching that those born after the cross of Christ should not be circumcised or keep the rituals of the law. After informing Paul of this, James, being Paul's elder, must have consented to the demand that Paul cleanse himself ritually in the temple. And Paul, being a Judean, was compelled to consent as it was an aspect of the pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic law. Paul himself had professed in his epistles that those who were born under the law had to keep the law so long as they lived, but that those born after the cross of Christ were freed from the law, meaning the works of the law which are found in the rituals. While Paul was compelled to honor James and submit to his counsel, since he was his elder, he did not agree with James. This issue between the apostles informs us of exactly when and why it was that Paul had written his epistle to the Hebrews. So Paul went to the temple to be cleansed, and his presence there caused a tumult as many of the Judeans wanted to kill him for what they perceived to be heresy. As we have already mentioned, they also wrongly accused him of having brought Greeks into the temple, which was forbidden by the Judeans. At this time, there were warning signs inscribed in Greek, which were posted around the temple in Jerusalem threatening death to anyone who was not a Judean who ventured to enter. All or part of at least two such inscriptions have been found, which stated in Greek that no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended 
apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. We have a copy of this temple warning posted at Christagenia from Biblical Archaeology Review, July, August 2003, page 36. Of course, Judeans at the time were not reckoned by race, but only by circumcision. Paul's accusers in the temple were Judeans from Asia, which helps to explain how they had known to accuse him of bringing Trophimus the Ephesian into the temple. So James's demand that Paul be purified in the temple essentially caused Paul to fall into the hands of the wolves. However, this too was within the providence of Yahweh. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem sometime soon before Pentecost, 57 AD. The only reason he was not killed at this time was that the tumult was so great that the Roman soldiers stationed in Jerusalem had noticed. During this time, writing in Antiquities Book 20, after he had related that Festus replaced Felix as procurator, Book 20, line 182, Flavius Josephus had also explained, in line 192, that because of the frequent insurrections, the Romans kept guards for the temple at the festivals. This is one of those festivals, and the circumstances inform us that Paul was in the temple on or around the time of Pentecost. This also brings us to discuss the writing of the epistle to the Hebrews. Even commentators who acknowledge that Paul is the author of this epistle claim that it was written while he was under arrest in Rome. One basis for that claim is the penultimate verse of the epistle at the end of Hebrews chapter 13 where it says Salute all them that have the rule over you and all saints they of Italy salute you. But in the Christogenian New Testament this same verse is translated to say Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. They from Italy greet you. The key difference in our interpretation is centered on the preposition translated as from rather than of. In the Greek text of this verse, that preposition is apo, which means from or away from, far from or apart from. So we would assert that Paul had used it to describe people who had come from Italy and had visited with Paul as this epistle was written, and not people who were in Italy when Paul was writing. At the time, the headquarters of the Roman procurator was in Caesarea, which was also the port city closest to Jerusalem. And it was the place where Paul was held in bonds for over two years, as it is recorded in 
Acts chapters 23 through 27. So Paul must have had many opportunities for visits from traveling Christians of the circumcision who had continued to keep the feasts just as Paul had also done. Although Paul had never been in Rome, not at this point, he had friends among the Romans. For example, Priscilla and Aquila had spent considerable time with Paul on several occasions in Corinth, in Ephesus, and they were dwelling in Rome once again when he wrote his epistle to the Romans shortly before this epistle was written. So Paul is most certainly referring to friends who were visiting with him from Rome. While he was under arrest in Caesarea, Luke wrote in Acts chapter 24, in reference to Felix the governor, that he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come to him. So while on the surface that phrase seems to support the assertion that the epistle was written in Rome, once it is translated correctly, it is doing precisely the opposite. The word apo denotes separation and origin, and not one's current location. If Paul were in Italy... He did not need that preposition, but only the genitive case of the noun to denote the origin and location of those whom he meant to describe. Using apo, he is actually saying that these individuals were from Italy, but not in Italy. And it becomes evident that he is describing people who had originated from Italy, but were not in Italy as he was writing. So, the epistle to the Hebrews was written while Paul was under arrest in Caesarea. This is further evident from the closing salutation in the final verses of Hebrews chapter 13. There Paul wrote, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Where it says that Timothy was set at liberty, that means that Timothy was released from prison. Yet, at no time are we ever informed that Timothy was arrested. And while Paul was arrested for a short time previously, in Philippi with Silas, that event is recorded in detail. And there is no space for the release of anyone accompanying Paul before Paul and Silas were released. It could not have been when Paul had written Hebrews. And it is quite explicit in Acts chapter 16 that only Paul and Silas were arrested at that time. However, While Luke, in Acts chapter 21, had only mentioned the arrest of Paul. In Acts chapter 27, when Paul was finally sent to Rome by Festus, we read, And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners to one named Julius, 
a centurion of Augustus's band. I chose to read from the King James Version for some of these passages. And entering into a ship of Adramidium, we launched, meaning that Luke was there with him, using that first-person plural pronoun, we. We launched, meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia. One Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. If Timothy were also in bonds along with them, then surely Luke may have also mentioned him, since he was much closer and dearer to Paul than was Aristarchus. Therefore, Timothy must have been released before Paul was sent to Rome. Furthermore, Paul still being in prison knew of Timothy's release because Timothy was in prison with him. Aristarchus, being a Macedonian, was also a Roman citizen like Paul. He was actually a Macedonian of Thessaly, which was slightly east of Macedonia. This is the same Aristarchus of Acts chapter 19, where Paul had the troubles in Ephesus, and Luke wrote, and the whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, met in Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel. They rushed with one accord into the theater. So Aristarchus must have been arrested with Paul in Jerusalem for him to be going in chains with Paul to Rome. Being with Paul in his travels as it is described in Acts chapter 20. And he remained imprisoned along with Paul until they were both sent to Rome. But Luke's concise accounts usually only follow the central character, and we have no details concerning Timothy, because he was just released. He was already released before Paul was sent to Rome. Later, when Paul wrote his prison epistles from Rome, he mentioned Aristarchus, where he described those who were with him, in Colossians and in the epistle to Philemon. But Timothy was not with Paul when he was sent to Rome, because, as it says in that passage of Hebrews chapter 13, Timothy had been released. So Timothy did not go in chains with Paul to Rome, although Aristarchus did. Therefore, Timothy was released from imprisonment in Judea. Paul continued in prison, and not in Rome. Once Paul was settled in at Rome, being under house arrest and managing his own affairs, he wrote to Timothy and asked him to come to Rome to assist him. And that is the letter which we now have in our Bibles as Second Timothy. It can be conjectured that Timothy was released because he was not a Roman citizen, and therefore he could be judged in Judea with no right to appeal to Caesar. When Paul gave his defense before Festus and Agrippa, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 26, we read that Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. 
Paul's appeal to Caesar probably saved his life from the Judeans who wanted to kill him much earlier, when Felix had heard his case. They even laid in wait when Paul was being transported, hoping to kill him on the road, right from out under the Roman guards. But now it was the reason that he was kept in bonds in the time of Festus. All of these circumstances taken together certainly do indicate that Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews from Caesarea, where he was under arrest for over two years. It also seems that he probably wrote it early in that period since he had also expected to be released. So he had evidently not yet been forced to assert his right to appeal to Caesar. Once he appealed to Caesar, he could not possibly have been released until going in bonds to Rome for his case to be heard there. And Paul must have understood that circumstance. The year in which Paul traveled to Jerusalem and was imprisoned was 57 AD, as we have already established. The year that Festus came to office is generally reckoned to be 59 AD. And Paul's appeal to Caesar is not recorded until that time. Paul himself was kept in bonds by Felix to show the Jews a pleasure, as Luke wrote in the closing verse of Acts chapter 24. And Paul was forced to appeal to Caesar after Festus came into office because he would not risk being judged by the Jews. So at this, we should imagine that Paul, expecting to be released in Hebrews chapter 13, wrote this epistle before Festus came into office and questioned Paul in 59 AD. And that is also when Timothy had been released in the time of Felix. This would be two years after his arrest, as Luke also stated in that passage that Paul was bound in the time of Felix for two years when Festus came into office. Sometime after that, Festus heard Paul, probably months, and he heard Paul again at another, even later time, when Herod Agrippa II had desired to hear him as it is recorded in Acts chapter 26. That was probably many more months. All of these procedures, all of these procedures, must have taken at least a year, since it is not likely that Paul of Tarsus would have been a high priority for an incoming Roman procurator in 59 AD. The event where Paul testified before Agrippa dating to either 59 or 60 A.D., we may generally reckon that Paul was sent to Rome in 60. And although it may have been a little later, 60 A.D. is the most likely year since Paul was sent to Rome at a time close to winter, late in the year. And the ship being delayed with unfavorable winds was forced to spend the winter in Malta where it was shipwrecked. It was wrecked upon landing at Malta. It is far less likely that Paul was held for another full year and then not sent until close to the winter in 61 AD that that long after 
having been heard by Agrippa, and after it was declared that he would be sent to Rome. So it's very unlikely that Paul was sent in 61 AD. He was definitely sent in 60 AD. Festus died suddenly, while still in office in Caesarea in 62 AD. And before his successor could take office, the Apostle James was stoned to death by the Sadducees. Unlike all of his other epistles, this epistle to the Hebrews has no opening salutation. But that too is for an important reason. As the words of James in Acts chapter 21 and the subsequent fate of Paul at the hands of the Judeans suggest, Paul was utterly despised by them all. So if he put his name to Hebrews, he certainly must have imagined that the epistle would be discarded and not even read by his intended audience. Therefore, there is no hint of the author of the epistle until its very last verses. And even there, Paul did not use, did not use his name. All of this, as well as the defense of Paul's positions, which are set forth in the content of the epistle, show that Paul must have been its author, and that this is when he had written it. While it also accords with all of the circumstances of the time, the times which are described in the book of Acts. Luke, having been with Paul during this entire period, as the book of Acts informs us, that would account for the style of the epistle. Hebrews is a very eloquent letter, written in the hand of one who was educated in Greek. And Luke is the ideal candidate for its authorship. The opening verses of all three works, the Gospel of Luke, the Book of Acts, and the Epistle to the Hebrews are all very eloquent works of literature written in a style which we would assert is very similar, and these similarities extend throughout each of these works. Ostensibly, Paul wrote this Epistle to the Hebrews to persuade his brethren in Judea that circumcision and the rituals and ceremonies of the laws of Moses were no longer necessary in Christ and that their virtue or righteousness could not be derived or achieved from those things. As we see in Acts chapter 21, the people of Judea were confused as to why Paul had taught many of the things which he did, especially concerning the rituals, or as he called them, the works of the law. In Galatians chapter 2, after describing his differences with Peter and the other apostles, Paul contrasted justification in Christ to the justification which is by the works of the law. And that issue is of primary importance throughout this epistle to the Hebrews. The epistle to the Hebrews sets out to explain Paul's position in answer to those very issues which are raised by James in chapter 21 of the book of Acts. Furthermore, while asserting and demonstrating throughout the scriptures that Yahshua is the Christ, 
the author of the epistle has the expectation that his readers have already accepted the fact that Yahshua is the Christ. So the intended audience is a Christian audience. He then seeks to establish the consequences of recognizing Yahshua as the Christ. As he gives the reasons for the abolition of the rituals, once it is accepted that Yahshua is the Christ, according to the scripture. The epistle to the Hebrews is clearly Paul's answer to the words of James, which are recorded in Acts chapter 21, and a clarification of the issues with the apostles at Antioch described in Galatians chapter 2. This context further stands to prove that Paul is the author of the epistle. So instead of a salutation, as he made in all of his other epistles, the epistle to the Hebrews instead presents an immediate argument that the Son, referring to Yahshua Christ, is the vessel through which the word of God now comes into the world. And at great length, it describes the consequences of the gospel of Christ to those who had remained in the Old Covenant traditions. I should say in the Pharisaical interpretation of the Old Covenant traditions. Paul arrived at Rome several months after having been shipwrecked at Malta in the spring of 61 AD. There were two letters written from Rome before Timothy was with Paul, which are the epistles to the Ephesians and the second epistle to Timothy. The epistle to the Ephesians was written from Rome, which is evident in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, where Paul had explained that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And we see that Paul is a prisoner when he wrote Ephesians. For example, in Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 1. And Tychicus had brought that letter to Ephesus, as we read in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 21, before Paul wrote 2 Timothy, as we read once again in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 12. There is contention over whether or not the epistle to the Ephesians was originally addressed to the Ephesians, but it can be ascertained that it was. This stems from the fact that in the oldest surviving manuscripts of the epistle, the 3rd century papyrus P46, and the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, the reference to Ephesus is wanting from the opening verse of the epistle. That's the only reference, explicit reference, to Ephesus in the epistle. But once the timing of the writing of this epistle is properly coordinated with the writing of Second Timothy, Paul's statement that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus in Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 12 reveals the recipients of the epistle for us that Tychicus must have been sent there with this epistle in hand, as it is stated in Ephesians chapter 6. But Ephesus is not mentioned explicitly. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read in verse 12, And Tychicus have I sent 
to Ephesus. That's the entire verse. We are not informed as to whether Tychicus had remained with Paul this entire time up to this point, as Luke had. But Tychicus must have been a free man and in Rome with Paul when the epistle to the Ephesians was written. And there, in Second Timothy, we learn that Tychicus had already brought the epistle to Ephesus. So in the closing verses of Ephesians chapter 6, we read, But that ye may also know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. It is ascertained that Paul was a prisoner when he wrote Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, where he wrote, For this cause, I, Paul, captive of Yahshua Christ, on behalf of you of the nations. Then, in the opening verse of chapter 4, he refers to himself as, I who am in bonds in the prince. Then, the full armor of Yahweh prayer in chapter 6 of the epistle seems to indicate that Paul had not yet defended himself before Caesar. And there is no mention of such a defense in the epistle. But it is; it also indicates that he knew that he was about to make his defense as he makes a request at the end of the prayer, asking the Ephesians to pray on my behalf in order that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth with free spokenness to make known the mystery of the good message, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in them I may, or among them, I may speak freely as it is necessary for me to speak. Sometime later, after his defense was given, Paul wrote Second Timothy. As a digression, while I had long hope to expand my article explaining the order and chronology of Paul's epistles and finally decided to do that earlier this month. I forgot what I had planned as I presented my commentary on Second Timothy so I will quote it now. I said, while we have a rather concise article posted at Christagenia titled, Ordering and Chronology of the Epistles of Paul and actually the article is there, but it sucks and it's going to be replaced probably this evening or tomorrow. We hope to one day expand that greatly using the detailed explanations which we have presented in the introduction to each of Paul's epistles as well as the chronological information we included in our presentations of the Acts of the Apostles. That was written in November of 2017, so here we are, just over four years later. The second epistle to Timothy. The epistle which we know as Second Timothy. There were probably many more epistles written to Timothy. This one was written from Rome, after Paul had already offered his first defense of Christianity. Paul described himself as a prisoner in 2 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 8, 
And he seems to have already defended himself before Nero, which was the purpose for his having been sent to Rome. As a result of his defense, he was also anticipating the possibility that he may be executed. This we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4. For now I am ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that also love his appearing. This also agrees with our interpretation of the statement that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus ostensibly with the epistle to the Ephesians in hand in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. After that, Paul asked Timothy to come to him in Rome. And in his last three epistles, it is fully evident that Timothy did as Paul had requested. This we find as we read further on in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Do like diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas had forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus the cloak that I left at Troas or in the Troad with Carpus when thou comest bring with thee and the books but especially the parchments and I believe I had a line out of place in my notes this also agrees with our interpretation of his statement that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus with the epistle to the Ephesians in hand in 2 Timothy 4.12. So, Tychicus goes to Ephesus. Paul has his defense before Nero. And shortly thereafter, Paul writes 2 Timothy, asking Timothy to come to him in Rome. But also, at the same time, anticipating the fact that he might be executed, not knowing how Nero was going to judge his case. Now, why Aristarchus was not mentioned where Paul wrote, only Luke is with me, cannot be explained, as Aristarchus is later mentioned as being with Paul in the epistles to the Colossians and Philemon, which were written after Timothy had come to Paul. But perhaps, or I should say, except that perhaps Paul meant only to refer to free men with those words. Since later in the epistle to the Colossians, Aristarchus is called by Paul his fellow prisoner. It must also be supposed that Damis, who is mentioned here, that Damis had returned to Rome after Paul told Timothy that Damis had forsaken him, since Damis is once again with Paul when Colossians was written later on. Here Paul had also asked Timothy to bring Mark with him, 
So we see that there must have been something of a reconciliation between Paul and Mark. As Paul's estimation of Mark's value was the reason that Paul and Barnabas had split and went their separate ways after the Council of Jerusalem and before Paul had begun his 18th month ministry in Corinth. Much later, Mark was with the Apostle Peter in Babylon when his first epistle was written. By that circumstance and others, we may date both of Peter's epistles to 63 AD or later since Second Peter was written as an explanation of some of the things in First Peter and also contained a seemingly posthumous accreditation of Paul's epistles. Silvanus or Silas, who was never mentioned as having been with Paul again after Paul departed from Corinth in 52 AD, was also with Peter at that time and may have delivered First Peter to the assemblies of Anatolia to whom the epistle was addressed. All of that is at the end of First Peter chapter 5. Timothy was present with Paul when he wrote the second epistle to the Corinthians in the winter of 56 and 57 AD. And that epistle was written from Paul and Timothy, our brother, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, as it states in its opening salutation. Timothy departed with Paul from Corinth the following spring, and he was present when the epistle to the Romans was written in the Troad. And he was evidently arrested with Paul in Jerusalem, but released before Paul had written the epistle to the Hebrews. For whatever reason, when Romans was written, it is only addressed from Paul. But all of the other epistles Paul had written, when the two men were together, were addressed from both Paul and Timothy. Perhaps this indicates that Timothy had done the handwriting for Paul, as was the custom on account of Paul's poor eyesight, his poor eyesight. But that is not probable, since it is not consistent throughout the epistles. Notably in Romans, where we are informed that Tertius had done the handwriting for that epistle. In my opinion, it seems instead that Paul did this to associate Timothy with him as a partner in his ministry. The only other apostles who had that honor were Silas or Silvanus, when he was with Paul in Corinth, and the epistles to the Thessalonians were written, and Sosthenes, when he was with Paul in Ephesus, and the first epistle to the Corinthians was written. Timothy, being with Paul and Silas in Corinth, when second Thessalonians was written, was mentioned in the opening address in that epistle as well. But not even Luke ever had that honor who was with Paul for the writing of his last seven epistles and evidently penned at least some of them. So perhaps Paul had recounted the deeds of his many other associates. Whether they were good or wicked, in the second epistle to Timothy, because he did not, he did know, he did know that his death was imminent, and if he did not get the opportunity to see him before he was executed, then receiving the epistle, Timothy would at least be aware of those deeds, so that he would not be deceived if he later encountered any of those men. 
But when Timothy arrived in Rome, Paul was still living and the epistle to the Philippians was written, as well as the epistles to Colossians and Philemon. A now lost epistle to the Laodiceans was also written at this time. Before Timothy's arrival, Paul had already written the epistle to the Ephesians and only mentioned himself in its opening salutation. But now that Timothy had come to Paul in Rome, probably sometime in 62 AD, writing the last three of the epistles which Paul had written from Rome in the closing days of his ministry, of all the others who were with him, only Timothy merited mention as a co-author in the opening salutations of Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. That brings us to the epistle to the Philippians. Philippians was written from Rome while Paul was with Timothy. That's in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 7. As he had mentioned his first defense of Christianity in 2 Timothy, he did likewise in Philippians chapter 1. After Timothy had come to Rome to be with him. So there we read, Paul and Timotheus, or Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, and a little further on, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. A few verses later, we learn that this this defense was indeed before Caesar, where he wrote in verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace, or the Roman praetorium, the name of the palace of a capital, whether it be the palace of a governor in a province, or the palace of Caesar in Rome, it was still the praetorium. So, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Even later, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul expressed the hope that he could send Timothy to them, and also that he would hear back from them through Timothy. Doing this, he commended Timothy and showed his exasperation that all of his other fellow workers had gone elsewhere or had even abandoned him, as he had also expressed when he wrote Second Timothy, which was probably no more than a couple of months earlier. Thus we read, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Then Paul continued his commendation of Timothy and said, 
But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he has served me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. In other words, which way Nero was going to decide. At this point, while Paul seemed to be sullen at the possibility of being executed in Second Timothy, here he seemed to be more confident that he may have prevailed in his defense. And we read, But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. It never happened. Then, in the closing salutation of the epistle, we read that Paul's testimony of Christ had prevailed with some of Nero's servants, or perhaps even members of his court or family, where he wrote, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. According to the historical sources, In 64 AD, Rome suffered a great fire, which Nero, who had already hated Christians, had then blamed on Christians. Ancient historians, certain ancient historians, blamed Nero himself and claimed that he played the fiddle in celebration while Rome burned. But those accounts can be refuted by other records. While Nero may have been mad by by this time, as the same histories have illustrated him, he did use the fire as a pretext to further persecute, arrest, and execute hundreds of Christians in Rome. It is unlikely that Paul survived Nero's hatred for Christianity just a year before. As according to Luke chapter 28, Luke, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 28, we may date the end of Paul's ministry to 63 A.D., Luke said that he spent two years in Rome. Luke didn't say how he left Rome, but I read that to mean that at the end of two years, Paul was executed. Describing the account of the fire, the historian Tacitus repeated many of the Jewish slanders against Christians as if he had accepted their veracity. Apparently, Paul had written the Philippians in response to having heard from them first in verse 18 of chapter 4 of the epistle to the Philippians. Paul attested that Epaphroditus had brought to him a tithe from Philippi. And there it is evident that Epaphroditus would return the epistle to them. So aside from Timothy, none other of Paul's companions are mentioned in the letter as the salutation seems to be unusually brief. With that, there are two remaining epistles to discuss. The epistle to the Colossians was also written while Timothy was with Paul, and it was written from Rome while Paul was still a prisoner. 
So we read in the opening salutation in chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. Then, in the closing salutation, in the last verse of chapter 4, we read in part, The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Because sometimes, like in Galatians, he hand-wrote his own salutations, but he always needed somebody else to write an entire letter. Remember my bonds. So we see that he was still a prisoner. Aristarchus was still a prisoner along with him. Then later, in chapter 4, we learn that Timothy did bring Mark with him, as Paul had requested in Second Timothy, and others besides Luke were once again with Paul, some of whom had been bereft, whom Paul had been bereft of in the epistles which he wrote prior to this one. So we read in part, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salutes you. And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, so we know that it's the same Mark, touching whom ye received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, who is called Justus, or Justice, who are of the circumcision. So we see Aristarchus right there. We see that Aristarchus was a Judean, but he must have been, as a Macedonian of Thessaly, a Roman citizen. Just like Paul was a Judean, but he wasn't from Jerusalem. He was a Colichian, being of Tarsus, and because he was of Tarsus, he was a Roman citizen. And that explains why. Aristarchus was not released, and that explains why Aristarchus was sent to Rome with Paul. Because Aristarchus, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salutes you, and Marcus, sister son to Barnabas, and Jesus, who is called Justus, who are, plural, of the circumcision. These are my only fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Now, we don't know where Jesus, who was called Justice, had come from to be with Paul at Colossae, or, I'm sorry, in Rome, when this epistle to the Colossians was being written. We don't know that, but that's okay. I'm not trying to find out. In the following verse of Colossians chapter 4, an Epaphras is mentioned, who is evidently the same Epaphroditus who had earlier come from Philippi, mentioned in Philippians, where we read, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, salute you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. In reference to the Philippians, Paul had called Epaphroditus your apostle in Philippians chapter 2. It is also evident that Epaphras and Epaphroditus are the same man where Strong in his concordance informs us that the word Epaphras is only a contraction of the word Epaphroditus. 
just as we see Titius become Titus, and, for example, Lucius become Luke, or Silovinus become Silas. Then, in the very next verse of this chapter of Colossians, we learn that Demas is once again reconciled with Paul, where he says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. A little later, from verse 16, we read of the now lost epistle to the Laodiceans. But at the beginning of the salutation, earlier in Colossians chapter 4, we read, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother, and a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. And I realize that I probably butchered some of these names compared to how they are pronounced by Judeo-Christians. But I don't care about Judeo-Christians. Sometime before Paul had summoned Timothy, Tychicus had gone to Ephesus, delivering that epistle. Then Paul told Timothy in Second Timothy that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus. However, here in Colossians chapter 4 verse 7, we see that Tychicus also delivered this epistle to Colossae, which Paul wrote when he was with Timothy. So Tychicus must have returned to Rome after he delivered the epistle to the Ephesians and was there with Paul once again while Timothy was present and these last epistles to the Colossians and Philemon were written. This circumstance also informs us that it was a considerable amount of time at least many months between the writing of Ephesians, Second Timothy, and these final epistles to afford time for both visitation and travel by Tychicus, Timothy, and the others coming to Paul from elsewhere. Mark. This brings, or Damus, this brings us to discuss our 14th. And the final of Paul's surviving epistles, which is the epistle to Philemon. I'm sorry, I'm parched. I didn't bring water to my desk in preparation for this program. Once again, a little further on in verse 9 of Colossians chapter 4, we learn that Onesimus, the slave on whose behalf Paul had written the epistle to Philemon, was also a Colossian and that he would go to Colossae with Tychicus when he delivers this epistle. There we read, in continuation of the passage we have just cited, where Paul is still speaking of Tychicus, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Therefore, Philemon was also certainly a Colossian. So Tychicus, who was evidently an Ephesian, together with Philemon, had delivered, I'm sorry, together with Colossians, together with, so Tychicus, who was evidently an Ephesian, together with I'm sorry, Onesimus, who is evidently a Colossus. Don't ask me how I confuse this one. This is crazy. 
but sometimes I write too fast. So Onesimus, who was evidently a Colossian together with Philemon, had helped to deliver this epistle to the Colossians, and therefore he and Tychicus must also have delivered the epistle to Philemon at this same time, since Onesimus was an escaped slave of Philemon. And in that letter, Paul begs him for his freedom. Paul begs Philemon for Onesimus' freedom. Onesimus is only mentioned by Paul in these two epistles and outside of them. We know nothing of either him or Philemon. We only know that Damas, from these same two epistles, and also from the second epistle to Timothy, written not long before this epistle, where Paul had written that Damas had forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed into Thessalonica. So, Damas is mentioned here, and we sort of know who he, who he was, and that he had a prior association with Paul, and he's mentioned in these two epistles, but we don't know Onesimus or Philemon from any point in the past before these two epistles are written. To further establish that Philemon was written in order to accompany the epistle written to the Colossians, in the salutation of the epistle we see that Mark, Luke, Aristarchus, Damas, and Epaphras are all mentioned as being with Paul, and that indicates that this was indeed written at that same time. So the epistle to Philemon was written as a companion epistle and personal message to Philemon himself, accompanying the epistle to the Colossians. This also is Paul's very last epistle. So we shall summarize some of our arguments that this is the very last recorded act of his ministry. Was Paul ever released from imprisonment by the Romans? With no evidence outside of an interpretation of 2 Timothy chapter 4 by the 4th century ecclesiastical writer Eusebius and the demonstrably errant chronology which accompanied that interpretation. Later Christians have imagined Paul to have been released from his initial imprisonment in Rome, to have then been arrested again, to have written Second Timothy during a second imprisonment, and then to have been executed. However, reading Second Timothy chapter 4, we cannot find such an interpretation to be a necessarily valid one. And furthermore, why, if Second Timothy was written after his second arrest, would Paul need, would Paul find a need to explain the fates of all those who were with him leading up to his first arrest? Rather, the writing of Second Timothy is consistent with Paul's first and only arrest, and his later having joined Paul in Rome, as requested of him in Second Timothy, which is when Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written. In Second Timothy, 
Paul informed Timothy of the status of his relationship with many of the men whom they had, with whom they had worked together in the past. And he does so whether Timothy should have known of that status or not. Ostensibly, Paul also did this so that it may also serve as a form of public notice. Then when Timothy comes to Rome to be with Paul, all of the surviving epistles which he writes from that time, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, are written no longer from Paul, but from Paul and Timothy. Luke was with Paul. Aristarchus was with Paul. They were Paul's fellow workers. But there are no epistles from Paul and Luke, or Paul and Aristarchus. The second epistle to the Corinthians was also written in this same manner, nearly a year before Paul's arrest, and even though Titus was also in Decapolis with Paul when that epistle was written. What we are informed of in all of this is that Timothy was chosen by Paul to be the heir to his ministry, the man he hoped would continue his own work. So Paul associated himself with Timothy in these epistles and probably also in the missing epistle to the Laodiceans. Paul rather explicitly stated in these last epistles that only Timothy was qualified for this task, although we cannot conjecture as to why some of the others were not or could not assume it themselves. Paul had told, Paul had told Timothy in his epistle to him that he expected his end to come soon. In Second Timothy chapter 4, where he says, For I am already offered, and the time of my departure approaches. Even if he still held a hope to be released, he was not. With all certainty, this accounts for the times and places of the writing of all 14 of Paul's surviving epistles. But there is still one more subject to discuss. It cannot be taken for granted that we have all of Paul's epistles. He also must have written many more casual or personal letters to his fellow workers, such as the note which is mentioned in Acts chapter 17, where we read, but those conducting Paul led him unto Athens, and they went out taking an order to Silas and Timotheus that they should come to him quickly. But in Paul's 14 epistles, there are also several explicit mentions of other and now lost epistles. The real 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9, Paul mentioned a previous letter which he had written to them which is apparently now lost. So our first epistle to the Corinthians should have been numbered second and the second third but we do not have the first. It was most likely written from Ephesus earlier in Paul's three-year ministry there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 1 Paul mentioned having given instructions to the assemblies of Galatia, where he said, Now concerning the collection that is for the saints, 
just as I had prescribed to the assemblies of Galatia, in that manner also you should do. These instructions were apparently in the now lost epistle, because they are not found in the epistle to the Galatians, which we do have, and 1 Corinthians was written later than our epistle to the Galatians. So we can assert that what would have been 2 Galatians was probably also written from Ephesus earlier in Paul's ministry there. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, one of the letters written from Rome, we see that Paul had also written an epistle to the Laodiceans, and Laodicea was not far from Colossae. This epistle is also lost, but in our order of these epistles, it would have immediately preceded Colossians, because it already existed when Paul wrote Colossians. Finally, there is an allusion to a now lost epistle to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul referred to something, just as I had briefly written before. It would not be fantastic to imagine that Paul had written many more epistles during his ministry, all of which are now lost. It cannot be determined when this epistle may have been written, but it would likely have been written as early as 56-57 AD, soon after Paul had left Ephesus and passed through Macedonia, or when he had wintered in Nicopolis. This ends our ordering and chronology of the epistles of Paul. Thank you. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.